Passwords are like underwear. Don't let people see it, change it very often, and you shouldn't share it with strangers. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Howdy ho, my dearest shit shows. Today, we are diving deep with Brett Johnson. Who the hell is Brett Johnson, you ask? Well, Brett Johnson is known as the original internet godfather. He is a former U.S. most wanted cyber criminal. And I heard Brett on another podcast. I heard him on Lex Friedman's podcast. And I was like, boy, did this guy have a dysfunctional childhood. And boy, does this guy have a dysfunctional relationship history. And then when I heard him uh, throw out the term fear of abandonment a few times, uh, I was sold. Got to get this mofo on the pod. So I reached out to him and he obliged. So Brett began his criminal career at the uh, ripe old age of 10 when he started stealing food from Kmart. But he like legitimately needed uh, to steal food from Kmart, like him and his sister legitimately needed to eat. I was trying to think about when was the first time that I stole anything. Uh, The first thing I can remember was stealing a thong, a thong pair of underwear from Victoria's Secret. I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12 because my mom wouldn't let me buy a thong, so I had to steal it. Uh, But Brett's true claim to fame is that he created Shadow Crew um, in the early 2000s. So Shadow Crew was essentially the first organized cybercrime community. Um, It's known as the precursor to today's Darknet and Darknet markets. Um, And he was very instrumental in developing many areas of online fraud, such as modern identity theft, uh, account takeover fraud, card not present fraud, and IRS tax fraud. We really focus mainly on his upbringing in this conversation. Uh, We do not get into the nitty gritty technical details of all of his criminal history, because frankly, it's, it's rather technical, as you can imagine that cybercrime is. Uh, So I highly encourage you to go listen to Lex's podcast with him. I'll include it in the show notes where he really gets into the details of how he was committing all of these types of cybercrimes. But literally, we would be here for five hours if I dove into all of that. And I really wanted to focus on um, his childhood, his upbringing. We do talk some about his criminal history. We talk some about his time in prison. Of course, I had to ask some questions about prison because if you didn't know, I'm I'm slightly obsessed with with all things prison related. So, of course, I had to ask him about like contraband uh, and about prison dating apps. Yes, for all of you love after lockup fans out there like me. This one tidbit I did just want to throw in. So before he kind of got into this real dark cyber world. He got in on the Beanie Baby craze. So I don't know about y'all, but I was a Beanie Baby freak. I probably had, I don't know, over 50 or 60 Beanie Babies. Uh, Every time my dad would go out of town, 
he would bring me home a Beanie Baby. And I just remember sitting in my room with all of my Beanie Babies and I would sort them into families by animal type. So I'd have like the cat family and I have like the dog family. And then I would have like the rando families where the dad's a snake, uh, the mom's a dolphin and uh, the kids were like a porcupine. (laughs) And I actually went home a few years ago when I went home for Christmas. I was going through all my Beanie Babies because I did have some of the rare ones. Like I have the, the Princess Diana one. So I went online and I was trying to search which uh, which Beanie Babies sell for a lot of money these days and took a bunch of pictures of them, posted them on, I think, eBay and on Etsy, thinking I was going to become a millionaire and be able to retire. Uh, but no one bit. But uh, they bit with Brett. So he posted a, a picture, a posting on eBay of Peanuts, which was a it was like a royal blue um, elephant Beanie Baby that was super popular and got a woman to buy it for thousands of dollars and then sent her a a cheap knockoff of that. So for any of you children of the 90s or parents that had raised kids then, wanted to share the little beanie baby tidbit. Uh, so before we get to Brett, I do have a exciting announcement. So Sunday, May 1st at uh, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, we are having our very first adult child virtual workshop. And it will be with uh, Sarah Mishu, who was on last week's episode. So the title of this workshop is Leaving Crazy Town. So this will be on Zoom and we will be diving deep into the thinking and feeling patterns of codependency and some tools to deal with them. This is limited capacity event, and I've already um, opened it up for my Patreon folks to sign up. So there's only a limited amount of spaces left. So it's 43 bucks. It's $33, though, if you want to join Patreon. And I will post a link um, in the show notes if you are interested in attending the workshop. Really excited about this, guys. And this will just kind of be the first of of many workshops. I really would like to be able to host one to two every month. I'm going to be doing one with Adam, Mr. Fixer Picker in May. It's going to be on attachment styles. So one reason to join the Patreon is that you will get first access to signing up for these damn workshops. um, And you will also get a discounted price. So go join the damn Patreon, you guys. This is also where I host weekly support groups. This is also where you say thank you so much, Andrea, for all that you do. You can also do that by following me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. You can also do that by leaving me a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. And if you have not done that, and this is not your first time listening to the podcast, what the hell is wrong with you? We still the same with the Linda fame A Linda change in the household name But ain't too much change We in the game, yo, but not to be vain I refrain from salt grains, season up my name We entertain for a mutual game For close range, steady aim My drum at your head Okay, y'all, it is my pleasure to introduce I don't even know how to introduce you There's so much to say Brett Johnson I heard him on Lex Friedman's podcast He 
is uh, formerly was on what the FBI's most wanted list, or or was it Secret Service Secret most wanted? Service? Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. like is that a lot like of people the, get that's that like confused. the B list. That's like... It's the B list, but I was the first <laughs> cyber criminal listed on the U.S. Secret Service most wanted list. Yes, you were godfather yeah, of, yeah, what of do you think cyber of crime. <laughs> That's uh, you know what people think that yeah you don't look like a little dork like you you know that's true <laughs> that's all part of it that is part of it I yeah. mean you can't if you look like a cyber criminal chances are you're not going to be able to get away with many crimes and the accent I mean what cyber criminal has a southern drawl oh. you know, a lot of them. <laughs> Most people are like, do you even know what a computer is? They're like, how you know do you know what that is down there, boy? Where are yeah. you from, Kentucky? <laughs> What's typing? <laughs> what is that? What, what, what? They, they ain't got no internet in Kentucky. I can't hardly get a cell phone signal there. <laughs> what is a cell phone? A bag phone. Know, right? <laughs> Did you ever have a bag phone? I didn't. No, no. I didn't. I had Did you have uh, a car phone. Never had a car phone at all. I didn't really start making money or stealing stealing large amounts of money until I was uh, probably late 20s. That was what, or late 90s? Early yeah, 90s? Um, so so Counterfeit Library, I, I was doing these, you know, scams and, and hustles and everything else. And yeah. cybercrime took off for me probably 97, 98. Okay, I was nine. You were was nine, I was, uh -huh. geez, 27. <laughs> so yeah, but um yeah, it was it was just this weird thing that, that happened. <laughs> yeah. It is fucking weird. It's really weird. Um, I okay, so a couple things before we get started. So have you ever heard of okay, so basically adult child, you said you weren't familiar with this term. So basically it was a term that came um about in the late uh 70s, early 80s. And okay. it was basically, are you familiar with like Al Anon? I am. That is okay. Yeah. So basically, there's Alateen. So it was like this group of teens who graduated from Alateen and went into Al-Anon, and okay. what they found was that they couldn't really relate. What everybody there was talking about with their spouses, or you know, and so they're like, "We just got out of this fucked up house, and now we're trying to figure <laughs> out how to deal with the impact of of our childhood." So they created this right. other program, Adult Children of Alcoholics. So basically it was like Sweet. the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family, mm -hmm. but it was not long after that, that they realized that this term adult child and the associated characteristics were not unique to just an alcoholic family. And that right. a lot of dysfunctional families could produce an adult child. And so I'm just letting you know, based off the little that I know about you, well, I, I listened to a three hour interview. You are an adult child. So I'm just letting you know that, that you are an adult child. You know, my wife would tell you the same thing. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Well, she probably is too, if she was attracted to you. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> um, okay. Have you ever heard of the adverse childhood experiences test? Okay. So it's called the ACEs test. So basically it really, Let's see what you have. I think that you're going to have a pretty high score. So <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> not good. Not good. Okay. That's not good. So basically, the higher the score you have, like the more health issues, both mentally and physically, that you would have in life. Okay, okay. so you had physical abuse, right? There was some physical abuse. Not, not a emotional, yes. Oh, Sexual, yeah. I don't think so, nah. right? Okay. No, not at all. Uh, physical and emotional neglect, yes. 
Yes. Um, mental illness. Yes. Did you have anyone that was incarcerated? No. Okay. Uh, mother treated violently or she get out. I know she left. I know she was, she was the violent one. Okay. And then substance abuse. Yes. Divorce. Yes. Yes. So everything except for incarcerated mother treated violently. Okay. So you have a seven out of 10. That's pretty high. Just letting you know. Um, I like to excel. Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next thing. So this, these are the common characteristics of an adult child. So I'm curious which of these you relate to or you have once related to. So number one, we became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures. No. We became approval seekers and lost our identity in the process. I never seek approval at all. What what about when in your relationships? What about ah, when you're dating in a relationships? Yes, but see with that, yes, you're right. Not with peers though. So how do you yeah. score that? Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about personally in, in relationships? So you're absolutely right. Yes. Personal criticism. How do you feel about that? I do have some difficulty with that. Okay. We either become alcoholics, marry them or both or find another. Yes, this is true for you. We will get into that. I know that that is true. Workaholic. Oh, I work like a dog. Yes. (laughs) Um, what about this? We have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility and it is easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. If uh, that that's that's true, I, I actually did a podcast on my show about that. That that my my motivation, cybercrime tends to have three motivations: status, cash, ideology. Mine is more. People think I'm cash driven. The truth is, I'm more ideologically driven, and that mm-hmm. I take care of my tribe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I go to the ends of the earth to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> so. because that wasn't done for you. Yeah. Right. Um. Addicted to excitement, absolutely for you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Confuse love and pity, and tend to love people we can pity and rescue. That definitely has been true for you I, in the past. I have put on my mask and cape before. Yes. What about this? And this could also be like in the past too. But like, do you feel like? I mean, I'm sure you stuffed your feelings from your childhood. Let's see, and lost the ability to express our feelings because of her. You know, I went, uh, I think I said that, I don't know if I said it on Friedman, Friedman or not, but I was 30 plus years talking about some of the abuse uh-huh, uh-huh. that I went through. A good 30 years doing that. And and now that I've been able to do that, I, I, I'm pretty, I'm free flowing with a lot of that stuff. But yeah, for decades. So this was the big one for me. This was like when I read this number 12, I was like, fuck. We are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from anything. Like yeah. Anything. I know. It's so rough. <laughs> you, know, you name it. I'm right there. Absolutely. Anything. You will put up with any line of bullshit. You will cover up anything, any problem that's going on. You will convince yourself that it's not happening. <laughs> you, will, you will sit there and take it and swallow it and take it some more. And then you'll go off and you'll be angry for a bit and you'll come <laughs> back and do it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And pretend that it never happened. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. You want to, you know, you, let's just not mention it. It'll work itself out just fine. No, no, it won't. Yeah, it, I, I like to call it a built-in forgetter. Yeah, exactly. exactly. A built-in forgetter. <laughs> That's um, a lot of truth to that. Yeah, it's rough. 
Uh, so let's talk about your childhood. So you grew up in Kentucky. Oh, wow. I know you have one sister. Did you have another sibling or no? No, I've got one sister, uh, Denise. She's uh, a year younger than I am. And I grew up, my dad was actually in the military. He was a cap captain in the army. So the formative years were traveling the world. He was a helicopter pilot. We lived overseas for a few years, lived across the United States. Where about overseas? Uh, West Germany. So that's you remember West that? Germany. I do remember that place called Swabish Hall. I remember, I remember vividly to talk about, you know, my childhood. Mm -hmm. My mom was convinced she was, just, I mean, just this bizarre person. So she was convinced that <laughs> our apartment was haunted had a poltergeist in it. So she, mm -hmm. she fabricates this entire story for the neighbors and everything else that, that that apartment complex, cause it was off base, that apartment complex was once a, an open field and there was a train that ran through there. And once upon a time, the train stopped and these two Jews were running away and this, this Nazi soldier, SS officer shot and killed them. And now that, now that that happened so many years later, just our apartment was haunted by the ghosts. I mean, <laughs> it could. People. It could. <laughs> but it goes so far. Now, now you know, when you're and hell, we, we were, I guess, five or six, uh -huh. probably younger than that. That's but, great to hear when you're five or you know, six. Yeah, you're hearing that. And then when mom holds a seance <laughs> with the neighbors and acts like she's being possessed by one of the ghosts, <laughs> that hits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah oh, yeah you're five or six and she's like here sit down let me tell you about the holocaust yes, now exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like ah. so i mean that's um is that one of your earliest my, memories my earliest memory and, and for years i didn't know that it uh i thought that it was somewhat fabricated that i just made mm -hmm. it up and i had this i have this memory that uh, i've got two early memories the earliest one that I know is for real was at Fort Lewis, Washington. My dad was on base there. We were driving. We had a, um, a, a old Oldsmobile, you know, like mm -hmm. it's in the Evil Dead movies, that same type of Oldsmobile. So uh, had that. My mom and dad were in the front seat. Me and Denise were in the back. Mom was in the passenger seat screaming at my dad. My dad, his catchphrase was always, please, Carolyn, stop. Just stop. Please stop. She lunges across the seat, grabs the steering wheel screams are you ready to die you son of a bitch and tries to steer us into traffic that's my oldest verified memory that i knew always always knew that really happened how old were you geez four okay yeah three or four um the other memory that i thought was was a false memory for years was my mom we uh, her parents lived in eastern kentucky hazard in a place called airport gardens which is kind of if for eastern kentucky it's a suburb mm -hmm. but uh their house anywhere on the else is a trailer there, park <laughs> pretty much pretty much mm -hmm. uh you know very poor area but um i i have this i had this memory of her having a a woman tied up in the front yard beating the woman and uh you know the woman was bleeding and everything and of course you know the neighbors knew what was going on i thought for years but that was made up that was made up until my mom it's been uh i've not spoken to my mom for i think about three years now but this is probably five or six years ago she'd come to visit and she had mentioned that kind of an offhand type way what did she I say like, i don't even remember how she said it but she re she referred to uh because what it was the woman had cheated my, my mom's got a sister 
and the woman had cheated with my sister, my aunt's husband. Mm. And I guess my mom took exception to that. So had, had got this woman and tied her up to a chair in the front yard and proceeded to just beat the shit out of her. Mm. And I thought for years that was fake until mom, mom had alluded to it somehow. And I was like, holy shit, <laughs> that, that really happened. Um, two earliest memories, two earliest mm. memories right there. What yeah, do you know so. about your mom's upbringing? Oh, it was horrible. My, uh, see, I, 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 when, when my mom leaves my dad, we moved back to Eastern Kentucky. We were in Panama city, Florida. What year, at that how point. old? Uh, 10 years, 10, 11. I say in speeches it's 10, but it was 10 or 11 years old. Wait, so tell the forget. story of like how you're, didn't you guys weren't, didn't you say that you were going to like a funeral and she just left? Right. So yeah, what happens is, is, uh, the way we got to Panama city, my dad, my dad, I think I mentioned in, in Friedman that my dad was, he is a good man. He really is. He just forgot he was for a long time, but, uh, how did they meet? They met, my dad had broken up with a woman and, uh, he met my mom at a, at a, you know, one of these like car hop places like Sonic back in the day, met her, fell in love with her and, uh, got her pregnant with me goes to tell it. Now his family was, his dad was tax commissioner of the County, you know, really upstanding family and everything. My mom's family, not so much. Mm -hmm. So my dad goes to tell his mom, you know, I'm marrying Carolyn and his mom literally passes out right there. And um, my dad says to this, (laughs) not good stock. And my dad says to this day that the day he went to marry my mom, that her dad, my mom's dad, pulls him over to the side and says, Regine, if you knew what I knew, you'd run right now. And uh, of course, my dad did not listen, and he went through years of hell about that. But uh, my mom's family was um, my grandfather Paul. He was uh, he was a diabetic, and they blamed his craziness on high sugar levels. And when I say craziness, this is a man who uh, he would fire off weapons in the house. He would uh, if someone pissed him off he he wouldn't hesitate to chase you around with a knife with a hose pipe anything else like that uh, there was one instance where um uh my grandmother alverna his wife she was decorating the christmas tree and he used to wear these steel-toed boots so uh, she's bent over decorating the tree and just for no reason at all the man gets up kicks her as hard as he can puts her in the hospital for a week this was, this was my granddad. My mom, I don't know if it's true or not, but my mom says that when, when my grandmother brought her home from the hospital, that Paul, she, they, put, they put her in Paul's hands and Paul just threw her on the floor. Mm. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't, I don't know, but I wouldn't doubt it. It's quite possible. That, it's quite <laughs> possible. That, that whole side <laughs> of the family was, uh, had that type of problem, had those types of issues. I mean, he, uh, the house that he lived in, he raised it up and he put apartment, he built apartments underneath the house. When we moved back to Kentucky, we lived in one of those apartments. Well, the other renters in those apartments, when the man went to sleep at 11 o'clock, if he heard anything at all coming from downstairs, he would get up and throw the main power breaker in the house throughout the entire house and, and kick the power. He wouldn't hesitate to do that. He wouldn't hesitate to go down and kick somebody out of the apartment apartment in the middle of the night, anything else like that. Me and Denise, when, uh, you know, we were young, we were, like I said, I was 10 or 11, Denise would have been nine or 10. Um, we were allowed to take, we took a bath once a week 
and we were allowed to bath in two two inches of water. And the man would actually come in and look at the water Hmm. is what he would do. Um, So that that was that type of environment. So, you know, my mom came by it naturally, I'm sure, you know, but um, my dad wasn't used to that. My dad came from a good family, but his problem, I think he has those abandonment issues Uh too. So, you know, he was scared of her leaving. She would, uh, Jesus, she'd bring men home in front of him. She would, uh, she'd try, you know, if she had an idea to commit a crime, he'd co-sign on to it. He'd try to talk her out of, out of it to a degree, but it was always okay. Would you witness these conversations? Oh yeah. They never hit any of that bullshit. <laughs> you know, there was none of that. My dad, at one point, he tries to leave my mom. He tries to do his, he files for divorce mm-hmm. and the way things work in Kentucky, you know, that the, the girls go with the, with the mom and the boys go with dad. And so dad, I was staying with dad. Denise was staying with, uh, with my mom. Me and dad were in an apartment and, uh, I was sleeping in the bed. It was a one bedroom apartment. My dad slept on the couch. Well, I heard something one night, got up. My mom has climbed in through the window. Mm. She's got a knife to my dad's throat, threatening to kill him because she's, he's stealing her, her son. She sees me. And I, I mentioned that on Friedman. She always had this thing. If she went too far, she would always do something else to distract attention. So she goes into the, into the bathroom and pretends to slice her wrist with a mm. safety razor. Mm. Comes out with it all scraped up and screaming and everything else. And of course, my dad pays attention to that. Not, you know, that she almost killed him. But there was that. There was, um, she fixes spaghetti once upon a time and puts decon in it. Me and Denise come home and see the spaghetti on the stove. And Denise is going to get some of it. And she's like, no, that's for your father. <laughs> so there was, there was that. I mean, Jesus all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's weird that, you know, I start naming some of the events and to me, just the naming of the events minimizes what actually happened because this was not just a few events. Mm-hmm. This was consistent. This is a woman. Yeah. This, this is somebody who, who would constantly tell me and Denise that she had given up her life for us that she was going to go leave sometime and never come back. Or we'd find her dead in a ditch someplace, you know, stuff like that. And I'll tell you when, when you got a parent that's telling you stuff like that, you will develop abandonment issues. So um, that type of abuse went on. I, there was one point when mom, dad had gone to work. Uh, Mom calls me and Denise in the living room one night. She's got all the lights out got incense burning and candles burning. And she proceeds to, she's got two chairs set up in the living room facing each other. And she proceeds to tell us that she's sold her soul to Satan <laughs> so that me and Denise can have a good life. Now it's funny l- listening to that, but you know, when you're young, you take that shit serious. <laughs> so, like, thanks know. mom. Yeah, Talk about Denise self-sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, Denise is looking at me like, you know, Denise looks at me like, what the fuck? I'm like, I don't know. So mom tells us we have to prove our worth. And the way we prove our worth is we take turns sitting across from her. We're not supposed to blink. We keep eye contact with her. And we think happy Jesus thoughts as she lets Satan come out through her eyes. So we're supposed to make sure that Satan doesn't enter us. And we, we spent hours doing that shit. Oh my God. So, um, how old were you then? Oh, geez. We were in Panama city. So this was probably nine, you know, somewhere through there. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was always something like that, 
that was going on. And, and just to, just to, just to name things, it, it really, to me, it, it minimizes the, the problem that went on. It got so bad. And I told you, you know, earlier that, that it took 30 years to talk about some of this stuff, but I, uh, when I started speaking, when I finally made the decision to try to turn my life around about the third speech in, I was like, you know, I, I realized that I was going to probably be doing this for a while. Yeah. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to be on stage <laughs> doing this shit. I'm not going to lie. And I'm going to try to find something new about myself each time. Mm. And I try to do that in a podcast when I'm talking to you or when I talk to Lex, I try to always discover something new about myself. Mm-hmm. So I started talking about things and it took about a year, but I was on stage and I mentioned on stage that that type of abuse got to the point that I would catch my mom and dad gone and uh, I would urinate in the floor. Mm-hmm. And when I said it, I didn't know why. And I said it in the, in the, in the presentation I was giving you, know, I don't know why I did that. After that, this woman comes up to me and she had worked with abused children. And she's like, you know, she tells me, she's like, that's a control mechanism. That's mm-hmm. the only control you had. Mm-hmm. Well, that is what got me to where I confronted my mom. Ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, what happened was, is my mom would always call and she would complain about my sister because my sister's not spoken to her for over a decade. And she would you know, say stuff like, I don't know why Denise won't talk to me and go on like that, you know, looking for that self-pity thing. And uh, my mom started that routine. And I was like, well, mom, you were the abuser. And she was, she, she got quiet. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I just started going off into it. And the more I started talking, the more I kept talking. Mm-hmm. And finally, I was like, you know, hey, there was even, you know, I used to catch you and dad gone and I would piss on the floor. And she, at that point, she's like, you're a liar. And that, that is what actually broke it right there. Her calling me a liar. I was like, by God, you are not going to call me a liar. Now I mentioned that to my dad, my dad, he just looks at me and he's like, son, I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. He, t- he gave the exact response that I needed to hear from him. My mom, you're a liar. <laughs> so, and, and that's wow. what, that's I mean, what I think, you know, that, I mean, she's just not capable. No is not, you know, if you want to, I've had, you know, I read all the comments on these shows that I do now and I've had people say, you know, narcissistic. I agree with that completely borderline personality disorder. I agree with that too. You know, whatever you want to call it, you know, a kid doesn't know the terms for that. And, and I, I'm at the age, I don't really, yeah. And I'm at the age, I don't even care about the terms of that anymore. I, I told my mom, I was like, you know, the thing is until you're able to accept responsibility, for what you've done and talk it out with me. I don't want to hear from you. So for the next year after that, she calls my wife and cusses my wife out, calls her names and everything else. She'll call and, and, and threaten me and everything. Then finally, over time, she gives up. So I've not heard from her for about right. two years. And, and I doubt that I will, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that um, the message that I really try to portray on here is like, Um, it's so important that we talk about everything that happened and that it's not about, it's not about throwing our parents under the bus. Right. Cause like, here's the deal. Like, as you were talking about with your grandfather, it's like, this shit doesn't like come out of nowhere. No, it it gets passed from generation to generation, but that also doesn't mean that like, we have to like, if it's not healthy, it's not healthy. You know what I mean? And 
Right. It's not necessarily coming from a place of blame, but more so from a place of like, I have to do what's best for me and I'm not going to put myself in a position to continue to be hurt. You know? Well, you know, that's, that's one of the things that uh, you have to, it's, it's that breaking the cycle thing. Mm -hmm. And that's a trite expression. Mm -hmm. It truly is. It's one of those expressions that says that people say so many times that for a lot of people, it seems not to have a lot of meaning, but you know, I think about that and, and what I, what I've, always say in my presentations, I'd go through some of my childhood, not through a lot of it, but enough to paint that picture. I go through some of my childhood and um, I always make sure I tell the audience that I don't blame my childhood on my choices as an adult, that my choices as an adult are mine. Mm -hmm. And I believe that I do. But that's to, that, that goes back to that, that whole tried expression of, of breaking that chain. You know, you, you have the choice as an adult, whether you can, whether you abuse your children, whether you go off into a life of crime because you were brought up in a life of crime, you have those choices, unfortunately. And I I was one of them. I mean, some people are, you know, the path was laid for me and I chose that easier path. I had opportunity upon opportunity. I was uh, very gifted in, in several different ways, but I chose that, that, that way of crime above everything. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, we do have to take responsibility. I mean, obviously, though, our brains get super fucked up and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like We've been subjected to trauma. I think what I like to say really emphasizes like, it's really that like healing is our responsibility. You know, like, it's, it's, we're the only ones that can do anything about it. I agree. I agree. But there, and there's, you know, I, that's that's one of the problems I have is that there's got to be there's a correlation. Mm hmm. Correlation doesn't equal causation, of course, but there's got to be some causation there too. I mean, if I would have been brought up in a, in a very healthy environment, the chances of me breaking the law, probably not going to happen. So, and, and I have a really hard time because I'm adamant about it, about accepting that responsibility, but I have a really hard time equating both of those together because of that because i i do know i i absolutely know that if i hadn't been brought up in that that type of childhood i wouldn't have resulted in that criminal that we know now yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, yeah i think it's like know. i think that i think it's helpful from from a, a place of like having um self-compassion right? right it's like we take responsibility for all that stuff we did it yes we're adults but at the same time like it's like, it's not because we're inherently flawed right? because we're horrible people. Right. It's because we were subjected to some really fucked up shit when we were young. And, you know, if you're like, uh, and, and, you know, you had a bad childhood, I'm willing to bet that you are very kind to other people. Yeah, and I'm interesting. People who Over, don't have a fucked up childhood kind of aren't interesting. Like yeah, I wouldn't take yeah. it back. Empathy, humor, all that stuff. Right. Like I'm so incredibly grateful for I if I had a if I had the option to go back and have things be different, I wouldn't. Because it shaped me into who I am today. I have to talk uh, Right. I had a talk my cousin. Uh, his name's Ronnie. He called me today. Hi Ronnie. I spoke to him about a about a, about an hour and a half. He's He's still got the criminal mindset. Oh my oh, God, lovely. does he ever? Of course, he doesn't want anyone to know that, or he doesn't want me to think that. But still, talking Ronnie. to him for any more now than five Ronnie. minutes, you know that. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, um, he was 
talking to me and and he grew up in that same environment now he served federal time for fraud everything else and um he's addicted to drugs he's been addicted to uh you know the opiates for for uh-huh. decades now and of course he, he won't talk about anything like that but uh you know it's just it's just it's sad to me and it's not just it's not just him on that entire street that we lived in, my, my older cousin, Sean, he ends up in it with a kind of a screwed up existence as well. Two kids down the street, uh, Fred and Brian. Brian overdoses on uh, Oxycontin and cocaine like one Christmas the following Thanksgiving. Fred does the same thing. His brother does the same thing. That both, of, both of them die. That whole environment, I mean, that's you can't dismiss the 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 effect that environment has on a child and mm-hmm. it's it's just you know i mentioned in in friedman that i never had kids <laughs> and it's it's because i didn't want to be my mom i didn't and i at least knew better than to bring a child into a criminal environment mm-hmm. you know i've got i've got two great stepsons now and i have trouble with one of them not criminal trouble he's just he's addicted to his phone in a very unhealthy way mm. but um you know, I think I'm being good with him. I, I, my, my goal is to make sure he turns out to be a good human being. Is it? I think that's that's the most I can possibly do is that. Um, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I've had trouble with all my life with uh, up until the last few years. I've had trouble with empathy. I was, uh, of course, I went through these years of being highly conceited, huge ego. You have to have a huge ego to do the shit that I did. Mm-hmm. But. Um, I've still got, got ego problems, absolutely, but uh, you know, I think I'm being more humble these days. I, something usually happens to me about once a day that checks that humility. <laughs> still being humble, Brett. <laughs> you know, have you, are you watching your humility, man? Mm. So there's something usually that happens. Mm-hmm. But um, so when you went to go live with your um, your grand, when your mom essentially kidnaps you to go live with right. your grandfather. Did your, did your dad try to step in at all, or was he just scared shitless of your mom? My dad didn't. So what happens is, is my mom, my, my great-grandfather dies, and my mom tells me and my sister and my dad she's going up for the funeral, taking the kids. Little did we know that she packed all of her clothes, none of ours, and she leaves. And I don't see my dad. I was... I was 10, I think, 10 or 11. I don't see my dad again until I'm 15. Wow. My dad, he, uh, I would call my dad on the weekends. And uh, I'd always uh, hoped that uh, that I'd go and live with him. He was in Florida. And uh, what happens, it was a Sunday. I forgot. It was when I was 15. It was a Sunday. I called my dad. I used to, I used to go out to the payphone at the shopping center. I'd walk out there. And uh, I'd call dad and have a talk with him. And this, this day he tells me he, he was either, he had either gotten married or he was about to get married. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I forgot which one it was, but it, you know, it was apparent that Brett Johnson, me, I was not going to go and live with dad. So from there, I made my way. I, I you know, kind of in a daze, you know, all that was kind of going south went to the uh, the hospital was right across the way i went to the hospital got in an elevator and a woman walked in the elevator and i proceeded to beat the hell out of her and uh, didn't know why 
I um, the elevator the the emergency button got hit through that. So uh, once once I regained senses or whatever you want to call it, I hit the emergency button. The, the elevator starts moving again. Door opens up and uh, an orderly was there that I used to play basketball with his son. He looks mm-hmm. at me. He grabs me and I haul off and punch him. And I take <laughs> off running and um, make it back to the uh, to the house, my grandparents' house. About thirty minutes later, the Kentucky State Police show up, and I, I hell, I just told them everything. You know, they brought brought me in for questioning, told them everything. They throw me in a county jail. I spent uh, charged me with uh, assault in the first degree. How old were you? Thirteen, twelve, fifteen, fifteen, fifteen. 15. Uh, they didn't have any. Uh, juvenile facilities so I spent you know that much I spent that I, I say three months I think it was actually six months I don't really, really remember to be honest mm. with you whatever it was I deserved it but um pled guilty the judge sentenced me to a psychiatric evaluation up in Louisville Kentucky and um, went up there for 30 days and they gave me a clean bill of health and cut me loose and I was supposed to get you know see a psychologist after that that never happened or anything because you're in eastern Kentucky and you don't have services like that but um, come to find out that the woman was I mean she looked very similar to my mom Mm. and you know now I can rationally rationally I can say you know I was a child and I was a lot of people have made comments that you know he he doesn't he was 15 well yeah 15 is a fucking child whether Mm -hmm. you like it or not but it was me that did that and I, you know, I, I can rationally understand why I did that. I can, but uh, in a, in a far different, you know, emotional manner. No, no, I can't. I, uh, I, I, you see, I'm trying to skirt around a lot of it, but uh, it took me um, again. It took me thirty some years to talk about that. I was on, I was on a stage, and and for me being on a stage is, is almost a safe haven. I, mm-hmm. I can talk about things on stages or even on my podcast mm-hmm. that I can't talk about even to my wife. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can share this. So it's, it's, it's this kind of safe environment for me, which is weird when I'm talking to all these people, but that's the yeah, way strangers. my mind operates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're strangers because I don't really give a shit what a stranger thinks, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, I, I, like I said, rationally, man, you can, I can, I can, I can see rationally how that happened. You know, I, you, you go from you, that abuse happens and then, you know, you're, you're, you become a carpet pisser and then you keep getting abused. And your mom pisser. plays these mind, yeah, your mom plays these mind games with you. And, and, you know, she used to tell me how she, how these men she was going out with had tried to rape her and, and everything else like that. And you, she continues to play these games with you until finally, you know, you think you've got this escape valve that's going on and that gets dashed to the side and then things pop one day. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can rationally see that, but on, an, on a completely different level, you know, it was me that did that. So It was, but God, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a very hurt child. Yeah, it was, it was screwed up. You know, Denise, uh, Denise never did anything wrong. Like that, Denise did try to commit suicide. Matter of fact, so so Denise calls me. I don't know. She called me four or five days ago. After it's like three days after the Friedman episode comes out. Where does she uh, live? She lives in North Carolina and Charlotte, and teacher fifth grade. But yeah. um, 
she calls me and she was like, uh, some friend of hers had listened to the episode. So the friend calls Denise and she was like, do you have a drinking problem? And Denise was like, no. So Denise calls me up. <laughs> and she was like, did you say I had a drinking problem? I was like, when you were in college, yeah, you drank like a fucking fish. You even said that on a recording that I did with you. <laughs> so, so she was... She was mad. And I was like, yes, I mentioned that. I mentioned to you try to commit suicide. I was like, yeah, all stuff that you had told me that's mentioned on the Anglerfish podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she, she she got all silent on me. And she's still pissed off at me today that I, that I mentioned all that. But you know what? I mean, if it happened, say it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's like, fuck, it's not her fault she did that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, so, your, your mom... <laughs> Your mom had drug and alcohol problems, right? She did. She was addicted to Valium. She uh, she did Coke. She did uh, drink like a fish, everything else. So, yeah, she, ha- she had those issues. Um, her problem was uh, she was really the person who tested everybody, mm-hmm. everybody. So she could she could have a kind heart. It's not like it was all constant abuse. You know, she could be very kind and loving, mm-hmm. but it was just a matter of time till something happened. Like, for example, my sister, my sister has a, has a scholarship to Berea College. So she's, Denise is going there for a history major. My mom somehow finds out that my sister has a boyfriend at Berea. My mom gets in the car, drives to Berea, goes in the president's office, proceeds to tell the president that my sister is a prostitute addicted to drugs that her boyfriend is actually her pimp and she wants her thrown out of school and the president because my mom can sell this shit the president believes this stuff all right and it it almost works until it just so happened some of the some of the board members were denise had a friend that her friend's parents were on this board so they tell them that they tell the president, hey, this woman's full of shit. You ought to see some of this. <laughs> so <clears throat> and then when it falls apart, my mom goes ballistic on the president. And the president's like, oh yeah, there's there's definitely some problems here. So, but that was, I mean, that was my mom. Um, I mentioned in, in that episode with Friedman that you know I had a a scholarship, full boat scholarship for uh, for theater. And my mom pulls a knife on the theater director. I'll kill you. You're not going to steal my son, you son of a bitch. That was that was her. Mm-hmm. And that was not just her. That was that entire side of the family that was like that. It was like there was this mental defect with everyone across the board. You know, so yeah, she, she, did, she did alcohol. She uh, smoked pot. Um, she missed, there was a couple instances where her pot went missing and she blamed me and Denise for stealing it. Hell, I didn't start drinking until I was 34. Uh, Denise drank through through college and everything, but I was always scared to do anything like that because I wanted to keep control of things. It turns out I'm a control yeah. freak. Who would have yeah. thought? But um, it either usually goes one way or the other, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know that you started. Um, you know, you would steal food because you and Denise needed to eat. Sure. Um, after that, after that incident with the beating up the woman in the elevator, you then ended up getting into a different school and you had this teacher 
right. who's like really instrumental in helping you write. And she's the one that got you into theater. She is. Uh, Carol Combs was her name. She's still alive. Um, I, and I got to admit, I've not spoken to her in probably three or four years. I, I touched you owe base her a call. Her I do. And, and the pro, I, I don't know why. I, actually, I do know why. But um, when, when I turned my life around, I went to visit her. I started visiting her and everything. And, and it was a very good, it was a very good um, reconnection. It was, it was very good. And um, I've not spoken to her in over two years. And I think that, that should I, maybe it's, I don't think I deserve it. Maybe it's um, that connection to the past that I'm just trying to run from because I always try to run from that. Mm-hmm. But um, she's reached out to me several times and I just, you know, keep putting it off. I keep telling myself I'm going to, I'm going to. No, but you know what it is? It's like the longer you put something like that off, the harder it is. Like the harder it like, gets. Yeah, and then it gets to the point where you're just like, I can never talk to that person for the rest yeah. of my life. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do need. I, I, I'm, I'm gonna try to reach out to her this weekend. No, but, I don't think uh, you're gonna try. I think you are gonna reach out to her this yeah, weekend. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're gonna. But I'm gonna uh, harass you. She. If you uh, don't. <laughs> I walk into that school. I, that was the only school that take me. I walk into that school and. Uh, she hears this voice. That's why she says that she hears this voice and she's like, son, have you ever done drama? <laughs> and I'm like, no, but I, bring I the like drama, to be though. part of the academic team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's like, nah, drama. And I, and the deal was because she was head of the academic team and head of the drama department that if I did plays with her, she would let me on the academic team. So uh, that was what happened. And, and, over the next two years, that was, I, I went in there as a junior over the next two years. I, I absolutely excelled at uh, my mom. Carol got to the point where she would have to take me home because the school was like you know, about 15 miles away from, from where I was living. My mom wouldn't come and get me until like six thirty seven o'clock at night. So I'd sit down at a convenience store until that point. I would do my homework or read a book or whatever. So Carol, one day she's, she's leaving school and she just happens to stop at the convenience store. And she's like, son, what are you doing? I was like, you know, I'm waiting for my parents. And, uh, she was like, well, where do you live? And I told her, she's like, come on. So she started, she would give me a ride home every day. Mm. And, um, I mean, just, just a really, really good person, truly a really good person. Mm. And, uh, there was her and there was a, another guy that helped out with the academic team and he helped out with the drama uh, department as well. And they were like surrogate parents to me. They were, uh, they were truly outstanding, truly. And um, while I was there, I was, I was, I was top notch, you know, and uh, you meant you showed me those graphs about uh, that, those abandonment issues. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is, you know, I, I didn't get a, a girlfriend until I was like 19 I'd already graduated high school and I had always planned on, you know, going out and being this actor guy. And uh, so I, I started dating this preacher's daughter and much like your Brian's mm-hmm. fell head over heels, you know, proposed to her six months in, mm-hmm. you know, convinced I'm, I'm madly in love with her and everything else. And <laughs> kind of put all that shit to the side about drama until I got that scholarship offer. And I was at the community college and this, the head of, uh, the theater in of San Jose state, he actually flies in because uh, the professor oh, of the cool. community college was friends. So he sees me on stage and he's like, son, full boat. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And then it goes south when my mom pulls a knife, 
but mm. my my thing with with women is you know when i when i have a uh, when i was in a relationship and this my wife now it's the first real healthy relationship i've had but when i was in a relationship it was just about that mm-hmm. no friends yeah you lose no yourself. contact with anybody else it was just that person and that mm-hmm. was it and and much like you said with brian it was this this almost unhealthy, you know, falling in love head over heels immediately. You yeah, know, you don't real. even know the and person. It's not real. <laughs> you don't even know the person, but you love them head over heels. That's my soul bait. No, you don't even know who the yeah, fuck on they the are. First date, I know. It's like I could find out on the third date that they're a serial killer, but it doesn't matter. It's like no. till death do yeah. us part. <laughs> yeah, you'll find, you know, oh, serial killer. I, it's okay. Yeah, they'll change. <laughs> It'll work itself out. It'll care. be okay. No, yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, it is. <laughs> it's that um I, I, like we have I don't know if you're familiar with like anxious attachment styles, but yeah, it's like we have to fill that hole and anything it's will bizarre. do. It's bizarre. It's truly bizarre. Date this preacher's daughter for 5 years until she figures out that I am not a religious guy. That you have been portrayed to be. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, "Oh, he's never going to join a church. He's not a God-fearing man." Are they so she breaks up with me. They were uh, Church of Christ is okay. what they were. It's it's a church that uh, you know they dress very specifically. They uh, they don't have music in the church, anything else like that. They take a very literal interpretation of okay. the King James Bible. Yes, King James, none of that American international bullshit. King James. So <laughs> um, she breaks up with me, and within two months, I meet Susan, and six months later, I'm married to Susan convinced she's the one and I was married to her for nine years and during that nine years lied to her every single day and I we didn't have a real conversation until the final week of our marriage mm. we had that much in common <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was soulmates. yeah soulmates not not a real conversation until that point and uh from there, and it's this Brian syndrome you're talking about. From there, I, I see a psychologist. I was 34. I had I'd never been to a strip club in my life. I didn't start drinking until I was 34. And uh, psychologist, uh, she's trying to get me to stop breaking the law. And I'm like, eh. she's wanting me to go into real estate. And I'm like, is there a difference? <laughs> and she's like, yes, there's a difference. But what goes on is uh, one night I get lonely and horny. I'd never been to a strip club figure it what was, was it time and I, it was a weird the, name it was joe's roundup oh yeah that was the name so hot <laughs> yeah so I, I i was convinced well i can go to a strip club and i can get laid <laughs> you just wanted to go and get t- you wanted to chat you just wanted that to was it talk. little did i know <laughs> that it was all about chatting so i go in and i fell in love with the first stripper that, that brian syndrome fell in love with the mm-hmm. first stripper that was there i i buy this 400 bottle of corbell champagne we talked for two or three hours. I leave, come back a week later, pull her off to the side. And I was like, hey, will you have lunch with me? And uh, within a matter of, I don't know, within a matter of, of weeks, I was convinced that she was the one. Mm-hmm. Moved her in with me and uh, found out she's addicted to cocaine, not only addicted to cocaine, but prostituting herself. And as I, that, those little tabs you showed earlier, that rescue mentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, codependent, yes, codependent figured if I could fix her, maybe I could fix me and I could win her love and we'd be together forever. Um, 
I have problems with that to this day. To yeah. this day, I do. Uh, my wife is not. My wife is not like that. My wife is is a little needy, but she's very healthy for me. She truly is. She's very healthy for me. Um, she was independent when I met her. I'd never been with a woman like that before at all. Uh, she, she, Lord knows, she supported me for years until I found this legal career of mine. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's the first real healthy relationship that I've had, and I still am learning. And Lord knows, she's patient as hell with me, but I'm still learning what a what a healthy relationship uh -huh. is. Like I, I have trouble sharing anything. Mm -hmm. All right. I don't like to talk about my emotions. I can talk about it to strangers on a podcast or, or in front of a, a group of people. I can do that. But the people who are important to me. Oh, no. Oh, no. I don't I don't like sharing that. I don't like uh, I don't like anyone helping me. At all. You know, if, if someone helps me, I, I almost take offense to it. Mm. So I, I don't like that at all. I, authority figures. I, I tend to have problems with authority figures. Of course. Knocking. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm still learning what that, uh, that healthy way of life is. And it's, you know, I'm 52 and it, I, I gotta tell you, it's difficult. It's difficult that my wife gets mad at me sometimes because I don't share things. Well, I, I'm yeah. sure a lot of it is rooted in your fear of abandonment. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, with my mom, I, I'm serious about that. I used to post up, she would be gone. I would post up at the window mm. to see if she was coming home. I would walk out into the driveway, see if she's going, if she was going any place and I had the opportunity to go with her, I would do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I would sleep in the car, think shit like that, mm -hmm. go off on these crazy excursions with her, all this stuff. So yeah, I, I, I came by it naturally. But um, even today, I mean, I have this, this profound fear of the people that I love leaving me. I do. I, I'm scared to death of that. And it's, it, it's, 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 it's faulty thinking to say it, but I would do anything to keep that from happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that, that I realized it was that, a lot of it was that CBT training that that I went through that I, that I realized these triggers and things like that. So, so when I became this lead, when I started to really want to change my life, I started to surround myself with all these law enforcement figures. You know, I knew people would be looking at me constantly. So I started doing that and I started building these support groups of, of people who would hold me somewhat accountable mm -hmm. until I was able to do it on my own. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, this, it's, I don't know, how it all ends. I mean, I, when I, when the pandemic hit, I was convinced that I was going to go right back into crime. And I was, uh, I called my, I called the family over and everything. And I told them how it was going to end be back in prison because no, I wasn't going to work or anything. Well, actually survived that. And the only reason I survived that was by voicing it. You know, mm -hmm. I told everybody, I told the FBI and, and by God, the FBI, they were outstanding. They, they would they'd take me out to lunch every two to three weeks. <laughs> Are you okay, Brett? <laughs> shit, shit like that. Um, so it was, it was, it was pretty good. But you know, one of the things that I've found, and I don't know if you found the same thing, but you can want to change as much as you want, as much as possible. I mean, you can really want to do that. But if you don't have those outside people giving you that opportunity, helping you, you know, 
You can't do it alone. It's impossible. Else like that. You can't, you cannot. And that's one of the big things I, I talk about. I, I talk to a lot of criminals and everything. People are still breaking the law than what I used to do. And I tell them that, you know, you, you, you've got to get rid of that ego problem. You got to realize that it's not just you, that it, it, it's that it takes a village mentality. If you really want to turn your life around, you've got to, it's that, it's almost that AA thing. You got to get rid of the people, places, and things mm-hmm. that used to do it. Surround yourself with a healthy environment, healthy people, and people who will help you. And then even then you have to rely on people that just out of the goodness of their heart will help you. And, and there's no possible way you could ever pay those people back or anything else like that. Like I'm doing an episode Monday. I've had a lot of people reach out about how can felons get work in the mm-hmm. tech industry? And the, mm-hmm. the answer is, by God, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Because you've got to build trust. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to trust you. You've got to build trust. And even with building trust, you have to have somebody that's willing to hire you just, out of, just to give you that chance. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's a big, big move like that. And it's nothing that you can force somebody to do or anything else. It's just something that somebody is willing to do, willing to take that chance on you. Yeah. It's like a miracle. It is. It truly is. I mean, the, the, I could easily, easily be in prison now. I mean, when I was, when I started speaking, I mean, it was, I didn't know if it was going to work. So I was prepping on what I could do when it failed. I was ready to commit this thing called synthetic fraud. I was ready to build a dark web marketplace. What is I was synthetic like, fraud? So synthetic fraud is um, 2011, the, the Social Security Administration, they randomized Social Security numbers. And they did that to combat a specific type of identity fraud. Turns what out were they before? They literally would go in order? No, what you, well, sort of. So if you're issued a social security number prior to 2011, if I know the last four of your social, which is easy enough to get, if I know the last four and I know the state you're born in and the year you're born in, I can get the first five quickly because it's a certain algorithm that that determines that. So that was, that was really a, a really popular way to commit identity theft. So social security administration, they randomized the numbers to defeat that worked like a charm, but because they randomized the numbers, you can no longer tell the year the social was, was, was issued. So what you can do is you can use a child's social security number, or you can create a social security number out of thin air. You then apply for credit. Credit bureaus don't know you exist until you tell them you exist. So when you apply for credit with that social, you, you use a social, add a name to it, an adult date of birth, address, phone number, apply for credit. When you apply for credit, Credit bureaus that have never seen that data before, they deny the credit application, but it creates a credit report in that synthetics data, that information. So now you've got that ghost in the system, that synthetic person is in the credit bureau system. It's recognized as a real person. Mm -hmm. You then pump the credit score up. You can pump the credit score up from a zero up to about a 760 within 45 days. You do that, then you start opening accounts, cash it out like that. That's synthetic mm-hmm. fraud. It's uh, 80% of all new account fraud, the fastest growing form of identity theft on the planet. I mean, it's eating banks alive. So I was ready to do that. I was ready to start a, a dark web marketplace and I was prepping all this stuff in case it failed. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that you cannot serve two masters is the thing. You can't be prepping for shit and still trying to obey the law at the same time. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> 
And I didn't realize that, but what happens is I was very fortunate that uh, Microsoft hired me to be a consultant pretty quickly. And uh, about three months into that consulting gig, I'd, I'd flown home to Birmingham and I was the only one awake in the house. And it, it really was, I joke about aha moments, but it really was an aha moment. It, it hit me that I was going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, an FBI agent had, had been helping me up to that point. He gave me references and advice and everything else. And I hadn't thanked him. I hadn't contacted him because I didn't want to have to lie to the guy. So uh, after that happened to me, after I realized that, I sent him a note. I was like, hey, his name's Keith Malarski. I was like, hey, I just, I don't want to have to lie to you, but I want you to know I'm going to be all right. And uh, he's, he's kept contact with me over the years and everything else like that. He retired uh, pre-pandemic, but he's kept contact with me. Um, and I've not broken the law or even prepped to break the law since that point. I thought I was going to during the pandemic, but I was very fortunate that I had a lot of people that, that looked out for me uh, and that I voiced it. And that was one of the only times I've re- really ever voiced anything. And that the power of just put, putting something in words where people can hear it and hear those problems that you've got, that can't be you know, overstated. It really can't. You know, it's when you internalize shit and don't mention it, <laughs> it's when a lot of problems pop up. You know, I, I was the guy who historically I, I adopted the attitude of I'm going to do what I need to do. <laughs> I just wouldn't tell anybody about it. So uh, I went through a lot of changes. I have. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of a damn thing that I did uh, prior to turning my life around. But uh, I'm proud of turning my life around. And I'm, I'm, I can't be egotistical about it because I wouldn't be able to have done that unless I had people that they gave me yeah. an opportunity, you know? It's just, um, I don't know what, it's it's very similar to like with alcoholism and addiction. Like, I don't know why some people are able to get sober and other people aren't, you know what I mean? And it same goes with like, with what you went through, like, you know, lifelong criminals. I mean, yeah. I think the fact of the matter is like what you're saying, like you have to have support, you have to really want it. And it's like, even sometimes that's not even enough. And I don't know even why, but like for some reason, like you and I are one of the lucky ones that it's that been draw. given this blessing, you know, you know? It's, it's that draw that, uh, you know, there's, there's a comfort to be found in not changing. There's a comfort mm-hmm. to be found in, in wallowing in self-pity. You don't, you're not, you don't have to be fearful of the unknown because you just stay right the course. And, you know, when you leave prison, you, you leave with the tools that you go in with. You truly do. You know, you may want to change your life, but without being that, given that opportunity, without, without having that outside assistance and things, it's very easy to fall right back on those things that, you know, yeah. instead of taking that, that, that chance on things. Um, you know, I, I was very fortunate that I was never, uh, I was addicted to crime. I'm addicted to women. Mm-hmm. I was never addicted to drugs because I was scared to death of the damn things. But uh, yeah, you would 100% be dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, when we talk about fear, so were you ever in like fear? What about being in prison or being involved with some of the people that like, were there ever moments? Cause I'm I'm sure, you know, in order to do what you were doing, you had to kind of squash that fear, but were there any particular moments that you can think of where you were in a lot of fear? You know, things got, got my attention over the years. All right. Um, 
I, I dealt with this guy named Roman Vega. He was a, uh, a Ukrainian cyber criminal. He's the guy that's responsible for physical counterfeit credit card theft. It's, it's expansion. All right. How did you get connected with him initially? So what happens is uh, cybercrime, there are three necessities to being successful. You have to gather data, commit a crime, then cash out. Turns out that those three necessities, one guy can't do them all, do all either them. because there's a, yeah, there's a skill gap. You don't know how to do every aspect of that, or there's a geographic problem. You're in a geographic area that doesn't allow that. Uh, specifically data, that crime, cash out, right? Gathering data, committing yeah. the crime, cashing, cashing out. out. All yeah. right. Okay. The cashing out aspect tends to hit with geographic areas. Uh -huh. So you're in a geographic area where you cannot cash out the data or the crime that you're committing. That was the problem with the Ukrainians. They had all the data in the world. They, they knew how to commit the crime, but they could not put cash in pocket. So this guy named Dmitry Golubov, he's on parliament in the Ukraine right now. He, uh, he went by the screen name of Script. He had problems cashing out. He's the he's the guy that actually is responsible for the that modern credit card theft that we see today. All right. He couldn't cash out. His people couldn't cash out. So one day he comes to my website, Counterfeit Library, and he was like, hey, I've got credit data. We didn't believe him. But over time, we ended up partnering with him and providing those money mules for all that data and the crimes that were being committed. And uh, that's the expansion of credit theft that you see today. Roman Vega was one of those people. And Roman Vega, where Script had just credit card data, Roman Vega had the physical credit cards that you could walk into stores with. He was also so Ukrainian? I was the, uh, I was, he was also Ukrainian. So most cybercrime starts with Ukraine, okay? And why is that? Because when the Soviet Union was there, the Ukraine was the tech center. Hmm. Most of your computer guys were Ukrainian at that point. When they all that schisms, you've got a lot of computer guys that, that are out of work, that can't mm -hmm. make money. So what do they do? They go into stealing money at mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. um, then over the years, cybercrime becomes this, you know, everybody wants to be a cyber criminal. It's in that part of the world. But back then it was simply they needed work is what happened. So Roman Vega is doing physical credit cards. Um, should I forgot the... Uh, the, the thrust of the story, but what, Oh, that's what it was, times I was scared. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that because I was his United States reseller. The only guy that was doing that for him. I didn't know he had been arrested. He got arrested in Cyprus. I didn't know that. So I get a message from him one day saying that he's got passports, counterfeit passports for sale. And he wants to send me one for review so I can see what it looks like and everything. I'm like, yeah, shit. Yeah, man, send it to me. Well, I was in Charleston, South Carolina at that point in time, I had a drop address that was about a mile from where I was living at that point in time. It was a, a house that was being sold, empty house. So uh, on the drop, I knew the time that the DHL driver was supposed to arrive. So what happens is, as I'm driving by the drop, I'm about to pull into the drop and I happen to see what, what I think is somebody showing off the house. So I'm like, well, shit, I'm not gonna do that. So I go off on up the road, I'm paying attention to the, to the tracking on when it's supposed to be. I know when the driver's supposed to be there and everything. I wait about 30, 45 minutes, come back by the drop. And there's about 30 cop cars out in front because they think that the people who are actually looking at the house, they were looking to buy it. They think it's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and did they have so, your name at this point or did they not know? No, who you were? no, they, they still didn't know who I was. Okay. 
So I, that was one of the things I, I got away from. And that, that put the fear of God into me to agree. Um, we started to intercept text messages of the Secret Service investigating us. So that put the fear of God into me. Um, script at one point, we had never seen violence in those communities. Script at one point has a guy kidnapped and tortured that owed him money. And then he posts pictures of it. That put the fear of God into me. There were all these things across the board where, yeah, you would get scared. But what happens is, and I didn't really realize it until I got into prison, but most criminals, most career criminals know the end is coming. You know, there's there's these little telltale signs all along the way. You know, you see cars, you see shit's happening. And what goes on is, is you adopt this philosophy of fatalism. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. And that allows you to, commit, to, keep going. to continue committing the crime and just put all that shit to the side and keep on trucking. And that's exactly what I did. I even did that when I was working with the Secret Service. They pulled me in, had me working for them, and I start breaking the law immediately mm-hmm. from the Secret Service offices. Um, two, I got two of the agents fired. Um, I mean, it was just, a, just, and they tried to help me. They tried to, to, to really help me. And I was just not ready for that type of help. I was just I kept right on trucking, you know, and took off on a cross country crime spree, made the U S most wanted list as we know, and uh, got caught, escaped from prison after that. <laughs> when was, it was it when they figured journey. out who you were? When was like, when did they have a name and face? So shadow crew makes the front cover of Forbes, August, yeah. 2004, October 26, 2002. Started uh, counterfeit library starts in '98. Uh-huh. We transition over to Shadow Crew 2000 2001. Shadow Crew shut down October 26th of 04. Okay. I'm picked up February 8th of 05. Okay. Secret Service lets me sit in a county jail for three months, then they give me a job, uh, both as a paid informant and as a consultant training these people on how cybercrime actually operates. Um, and I was the guy that breaks the law from inside Secret Service offices for the next 10 months until they yeah, find so out. And then you go to prison. And then I go to <laughs> and then prison. then you escape. Well, when did you escape? escape? Yeah. <laughs> um, got arrested September. So I was on the run, made the U.S. most wanted list, arrested September 16th of 06. Stayed uh, eight months in a county jail. I ended up escaping probably, I think, around June of seven. And what, was it six weeks you were out? How long again? I was out probably three to five weeks. Not were you like in fear the whole time or you just didn't give a shit? Oh, yeah. You knew yeah. you were going to oh, get man, caught, I right? Had, <laughs> I had dyed my hair yeah. this flaming red. <laughs> all this other bullshit. You know, try, try to try to hide my identity. I had, uh, I didn't know that Script and, and those guys were under investigation. And um, so I was waiting on more IDs to come, more money to come. I was going to bug out and it never showed up. So I was operating under my own driver's license mm-hmm. and it didn't take, you know, U.S. Marshals, but a few weeks to canvas a three-state area and figure yeah. out where the hell Brett Johnson was. Mm-hmm. So I was in a hold up in a hotel and uh, had a laptop. I was getting ready to engage in identity theft, uh, tax return identity theft and uh, had the window open. This, this guy walks by the window <laughs> one afternoon <laughs> and I see him walk by and he stops. Then he backs up, looks at me through the window and he knocks on the window and I'm like, yes. And then he pulls a badge out of his, out of his shirt and he points at the badge. Then he points at me. Then he points at the door and he mouths the word now. What so if he I, had said, I opened he up knocks the, on, what if he went like this? I love your hair. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> 
Where'd you the get your hair done? Was, Who does your hair, man? <laughs> the funny thing was, you know, I spent uh, I spent like five months in a county jail before sentencing on that. Then I did eight months of solitary. Ugh. Well, in the county jail, I shaved the hair off and everything. So he doesn't Bummer. see me for about three months. <laughs> three months later, he, he pulls me out of a cell and he's like, are you that same guy? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what the fuck happened to the hair? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like, that know. was the only thing you had going for you, man. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. So, I mean, I was hard headed. I mean, I was, I was a pure asshole. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, nobody was telling me anything. <laughs> You're like, I look good. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to get out and do it again. Ugh. All that stuff. Yeah. So it was a long trip. What about being in prison? I mean, solitary is crazy, but like, what about being in, like, be, when you were in the facility in, in Texas? I mean, was that scary? It didn't get, you know, the weird thing was, is uh, it got scary when they found out that I was a Secret Service informant. It got scary at that point until the Aryans told me that everything was all right. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, until someone gets here, you told on, you're fine. So I had to work for them and shit like that. So I did that. Uh, there was one area and his name was Adam that did not agree with what they said. And this kid would hound me or he hounded me for about a week and a half to two weeks. He'd catch me in a crowd and he'd start talking about it, hoping that someone would jump me. All right. And um, we were in the same unit. It was an open barracks style uh, layout. And what happens is, is we're all gathered around and he's talking shit one day. And uh, I looked at him and I said, Aaron, you're really scaring me. And he was like, good, I'm glad I am. And I was like, well, here's what is going to happen. I said, I'm going to catch you asleep and I'm going to stab a pencil in your eye. And he looks at me and I'm like, serious. Well, the head Aryan was there and he heard it. He makes Aaron check in that night and Aaron left the compound. And what does uh, that mean? That was what happened. So, so I guess they realized that I was serious because you have to be serious if you say something like that. And instead of them keeping him on the compound, they made him leave the compound. So he checked himself into protective custody. He spends, you know, six months in solitary and then he bugs out to another institution is what happens. And, uh, so what is it like you check was, in, like saying that you're at your life is at risk. Essentially, yeah, you're that? worried. Uh, you're, you're worried about it. You're afraid some that violence is going to happen. So you go and report and they put you in solitary for a few months. And then, and so what if he out. hadn't have done that? Would they kill him? they would have made him check in. <laughs> so that's, they would have, they would have told him you're going to check in or you're going to face the consequences. And they would have, he would have checked in or they would have beat the shit out of him. And he would have checked in anyway. So they, they bypassed that. And the only reason was, is because I was teaching them how to commit fraud at that mm -hmm. point in time. Mm -hmm. I had value. turns out if you've got value in an incident in a prison, they're not going to hurt you they're going to try to milk that out of you as much as they possibly can. So that was, that was really the only, well, not the only time that was the main time I was really scared in prison. Um, then the first riot that hits at big spring, we went through three, three riots. The first riot scared absolutely to death. So how does no that, idea. is it planned? Like, how does it work? Like, is it planned? It's or? weird. It's weird. You don't realize it when it first goes on because you don't see the signs. Okay. All right. So, when it first happens, it's like it happens immediately. You're like, holy shit, man. 
people are, are, are hitting each other with locks. You've got all this shit going on. And you're like, Jesus Christ, you're, and, and the people that are in your unit, you're trying to barricade the door to keep the other guys they, out. Is everybody just else. going at each are, other or are they going at the guards? No. See, you think that's what's going on. What you is think going that on? Every inmate's going on each other. That's, that's the first riot because you don't really know what's going on. All right. The second riot, though, is because you've already been through one, you know how everything works. The second riot, you start to notice shit, this thing is racial. And it's not the white guys, it's the Hispanics and the African-Americans that are rioting with each other. So that second riot, you start to see that, hey, no white guys are fighting. Mm. They're not getting hit, nothing else. So by God, by the third riot, and that's when you start to notice the signs. And the signs are, it's almost like a tension all of a sudden. You start to hear rumors that, well, something happened in the TV room. You know, you need to make sure you get water tonight. You know, you need to make sure you'll see a line because at Big Spring, all the water was filtered. So was, there was only one or two places on each floor you could get water. So you'd see a line of people with their water jugs filling up water and you knew something was going to happen. Mm. All right? And by the time the third ride pops off, you've, you're prepared, you see all, and you're calm because mm. it's, not, it's not involving you. So you literally lay in your bunk and let everybody else wage war. <laughs> and, and that's the way it works and you're locked down for you know four or five days after that and then everything resumes as normal from that point but uh, i mean it, it's it's a wild environment it gets to the point where uh, you know it sounds it sounds crazy talking about it but that becomes pretty quickly that becomes your norm mm-hmm. you know you 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 adapt to that environment and you proceed on with that i saw uh, i saw two people murdered at big spring and, uh, and both of them have their heads beaten mm. in, uh, on the outside, on the, on the walking track, on the inside walking track there. Um, and what happens is I talked about that on Friedman. You, uh, they shut the compound down. They, they give you a bag lunch from morning, you know, morning, noon, and night, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You get a bag, which is a bologna sandwich, a bag of chips, and a pack of juice or a pack of milk. Mm. That's, your, that's what you eat. And then, uh, you know, about three days into it, they, they make two lines of inmates, and they bring you in a little room and they ask two questions. The first question is, did you see anything? And the answer is always no. And the next question is, well, if you had have seen, seen anything, would you tell us? And the answer is no. And then they look at you and say, get the fuck out. <laughs> you get the fuck out. If you stay any length of time in there at all, whoever the shot caller is on your race, they pull you to the side. What the fuck happened? What were you in there talking about? And it goes from there. So, uh, there's always checks and balances and you, you make sure that you, you know, the inmates are the ones who run it. It's not the guards. The guards just try to keep discipline as much as they possibly can, but the inmates run things and you make sure that you adhere to the way things are going in that prison, or you don't find yourself on that compound for very long. Um, have you ever heard of the show love after lockup? I'm not. I'm fucking. <laughs> Do I need obsessed. to listen to it? <laughs> it's a, no, it's a, it's a TV show. So did okay, you ever? Okay. It's about. It's so. Did you ever get on any of like the prison like dating app things? I didn't. I had this. Oh, I had this one on. girl. No, Ooh. I had. I had this one girl that uh, one of one of the inmates. Uh, he was talking. He was. He had gotten on one of those damn sites, or you know, through the through the pictures or some bullshit like that. He had gotten a connection, <laughs> and so some girl was writing him, and. Uh, she had a friend and he was like, Hey man, do you like this chick? And I looked at her and I was like, oh, yeah, I ain't seen a chick forever. I like her. Yeah. So we started to write each other and she was a bank robber. <laughs> how lovely. Perfect. So Perfect how lovely. Match. So, uh, 
when I got when I got cut out of prison and I was at the halfway house, she ended, she actually ended up tracking me down and she called oh, me for like once, once or twice. But uh, you could have been on that show. So basically, know, it's right? like people that meet one person's in the other person's out and they start filming right before the person's about to get out. Oh, no. And then they film them and it is like no. fucking TV gold. It is so good. It's so good. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you, this is one thing I don't understand. So let's say you were an alcoholic or an addict in prison. Sure. Like, could I have a daily habit? You could. Absolutely. How the fuck could. is it getting in? So, uh, hooch, uh, hooch or, you know, whatever Ooh. you want to call it. It's at, at, at Fort Worth. That's where I served out my time. It was extremely easy to get wine as much as you wanted to. You could make it or the guards would bring it in the guards would bring in bottles for you. Um, so that was one of the ways it was brought in. The thing on fe in federal time, what's against the law, you're not allowed tobacco. So a cigarette mm. sells for $7. A carton sells 70? for $1,000. Seven. A single cigarette is is seven dollars. All right. That's when I was in. That was back in 2011. So it's probably went up since that point. But a carton of cigarettes sold for a thousand dollars. All right. Mm -hmm. So you could get a guard, a guard would, you could pay guards to bring cartons of cigarettes in. And there was a huge market for that. So a lot of the times it wasn't even, you could get illicit drugs, but most of the time it was alcohol and tobacco that was sold. I mean, there was, there was a little, little bit of meth on the compound. There was more marijuana on the compound. Uh, there was a couple instances where guys had heroin on the compound. Uh, I remember this one. <laughs> We had this one meth guy in there. One meth guy. And the problem is, is that, you know, yeah, one meth guy. And uh, I mean, there were several meth guys, but this one specific meth guy, he had convinced this female guard that he loved her. All right. I bet she ate that shit up. Oh, she did. So she's convinced that they're going to have this life together and everything. So he talks her into bringing drugs on the compound. Little does she know that as soon as she agrees to do it, he contacts his lawyer and sets her ass up. So as soon as she comes into prison with drugs, U.S. Marshals are right there and they arrest her ass, cut his ass out early. Really? How much? <laughs> how, oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. So she probably got 48 months. Uh, certainly through visitation, you have people that, that bring in. Uh, so, so with visitation, what will happen is, is you have an an outside visitor bring in drugs in balloons. Yeah. All right. And you drop the balloons in a bag of chips, give it to the inmate and the inmate eats the balloons and shits them out later is what happens. All right. And that's, that's one of the ways that, that it gets in uh, these days with drones, you have drones that, that drop drugs drop in as off. well. You used to have people that would slingshot drugs over into the yard, stuff like that. Okay. But there's, there's certainly ways that you can get that in, but for federal, the money is in tobacco and uh, that's, that tends to be the way the, the drug of choice is tobacco because the charges for an inmate, not really serious. Not, what not about like for the guards? Like how like often are they getting busted? They get busted pretty regularly. And well, they get immediately guard, fired. Know, oh yeah. You're immediately fired. You're prosecuted. Um, at Ashland, there was a guard who uh, they proved he, he brought in 200,000. He made $200,000 bringing in tobacco so his his dollar amount is two hundred thousand dollars he's going to get you know 36 months something like that is what what the charges is because you go by the dollar amount of the crime at that point and wow. you go by the sentencing guidelines 
Yeah. What, <laughs> what about this? What do you think about for, um, you know, criminals trying to reform? Do you think it's any more or less difficult for like a cyber criminal versus somebody who was like maybe a drug dealer or like in a gang? Like, what do you think about that? I think that gangs are probably pretty hard to reform. I think that cyber criminals are too, because you don't have to, as a cyber criminal, you don't have to ever face your victim. So mm. you don't see the damage that mm. you cause that victim. All right. And it's a lot of damage that you can do to the, to, that you can do to someone. You destroy their credit. You like, I had a, an instance where I, I stole uh, a coin collection from a woman that was trying to put a house, a roof on her house for a kid, single parent. You don't have to see the damage that you're doing to your victims. And because of that, because you never have to face up to that, I think it's much easier to return to that life of crime. And, and the tools are there. The thing about cybercrime now is that you don't have to know really anything to be profitable at these crimes. Mm -hmm. It's done for you by off-the-shelf products. You have tutorials, you can take classes, people help you and walk you through these types of things. Um, profit is almost guaranteed. Plus, because of that obscurity of, of the victim, you can convince yourself pretty easily that I'm not stealing from people, I'm stealing from governments. Mm -hmm. I'm stealing from, you know, banks, then they can afford it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, there's always a victim. So you are victimizing people as well. So there's all that. And, and criminals are very good, um, especially cyber criminals are very good about justifying that crime by rationalizing it, saying, you know, I'm not hurting really anybody or I'm doing it for this reason, for this reason, and compartmentalizing that. I was very good about that too. You know, I'm online, I'm this bad guy, but in the real world, <laughs> you know, I'm a good guy. No, no, you're a piece of shit, both places, you know, and it, it, it takes a long time to, um, to accept that. And I, I think that most people can't accept that. My, my cousin, for example, he's not accepted that. Yeah. Ronnie. Right. Hey, Ronnie. Um, <laughs> um, what about like making amends and like restitution, like as far as that, like not, not even directly to your victims, but are there things that you sure. try to, that you try to do to like, so, so I owe, um, I think I'm, I think I'm under 600,000 restitution now, um, paying on that. I didn't pay on any of it during the pandemic because I was going broke. I did go broke. Um, amends you cannot, I, I'm a firm believer that you cannot make amends for the damage that you've done in the past. But what I can do, and I'm adamant about doing that, is making sure that my choices now are solid, good choices. Mm -hmm. uh, Living when, amends. When, when, right. So when I, when, when like a victim contacts me, I have victims contact me with Zell fraud. I've, I'm working with one right now on Zell fraud. And I go to the ends of the earth to try to make sure mm. that that victim is, is made whole. All right. Um, talk about it. I reached out to, to, to the press, every, everybody else. And I, that's that, uh, you, you, we mentioned it earlier that going above and beyond what typical people would do to help somebody, um, not trying to brag about it or anything else like that. I just, I, I try my damnedest to, uh, to help people. And I make money off of, uh, you know, corporations, banks, things like that. Um, any individual that needs help, I will help you as much as I possibly can. I, I speak free with, uh, with help individuals, help law enforcement as much as I can, speak at universities free, things like that. Um, a lot of the times I'll get somebody that contacts me 
<clears throat> like I, I get a lot of Ponzi scam people. You know, I'm a victim of a Ponzi scam. And then you talk to them, you realize, well, you knew it was a Ponzi mm. scam. Mm-hmm. And you figured you were going to make money because you were one of you thought you were one of the early people in on the Ponzi scam. Yeah, so you would profit. Now you're wanting me to help you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, not going to help you. <laughs> but uh, you know, the people who uh, like this 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 girl from Virginia, who um, she got hit with Zell fraud twice, and Wells Fargo has refused to uh, to help her out. I raise a lot of hell about that. I really do. And I get my ass in a lot of trouble sometimes about it. Like I, I'm, I'm working in, in, in corporate world these days. And some of the people that I work for get upset about that. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? It, it really hurts when you find out I'm not motivated by money. <laughs> you know, I, I take care of my tribe and my tribe these days has Our shifted victims. from the criminal world yeah. to consumers. Exactly. So, you know, but uh, I, I try, I want to, I want to be remembered not as the guy who stole everything, but the guy who turned things around. That's my goal right now is that. No judgment. And that that means a lot to me. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Where can people find <laughs> you if you want to be found? So I, I do want to be found. Oddly enough, I like talking about it because it, it, it provides me therapy. Even when yeah, I'm raising you don't hell, to talk I get to your wife. <laughs> Well, yeah, don't tell her that. She she gets so mad at me because she's like, she'll listen to my podcast. She's like, you've never told that to me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. But she's starting to understand, you know, over the, it's taken all these years, but she's starting to understand that, you know, that's that safe haven for me. Um, you can find me on YouTube, the Brett Johnson show. I'm, I'm going to have it on uh, the podcast pretty soon. But right Sweet. now I'm on YouTube for the Brett Johnson show. You can catch me on, uh, if you want to contact me directly, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brett Johnson, cyber criminal. My ass will pop up. That's what I did. Or, uh, yeah, or anglerfish.com. A-N-G-L-E-R-P as in Paul, H-I-S-H.com. If you guys have any, and I mean this, if you've got any issues with security, got any questions about if you're going undergoing a scam or anything else, reach out to them. You may have to chase me down a little bit, but I will help you as much as I possibly can. I truly mean that. All right. Well, I just want to say this last thing. I really don't want you to return to crime, but if you ever do, can your screen name please be Carpet Pisser? Car- <laughs> Car- you know, I do like the Big Lebowski a lot. Yeah, Carpet Pisser. <laughs> that rug really tied the room together. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, that wraps up today's episode. I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. Thanks again to Brett. I realized that I didn't kind of get into what he has done as far as like healing work, um, but he does talk about it some on Lex's um, podcast about uh, CBT courses that he did. And he actually ended up getting into this um, like a drug program, like through the prison and I can't remember how long he was there. He lived in a halfway house. But um, even though he wasn't an addict, he was a part of this program. And uh, I think he maybe worked the steps while he was there. But as he said, he wasn't an, an alcoholic or an addict, but he was addicted to crime and to women. Uh, so, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that he helps people. I wish I had known him a few years ago where I got scammed on Zell. Um for trying to buy a Elton John tickets. You know, I'm pretty, I don't know. I don't think I'm very naive. I think I'm 
pretty street smart. Um, and this guy really, he was a fucking pro, this guy that scammed me, but of course nothing comes of it. I filed a police report, but I never got my money back. Um, so yes, uh, what else? Go sign up for that workshop. Go sign up for the damn Patreon. Again, if you are listening this far into the podcast, what the hell is wrong with you? Go sign up for the Patreon. Maybe you're somebody out there that you're like, I'm scared to do it. I don't want to do um, the support groups. Uh, that freaks you out a little bit. Well, you don't have to do the support groups. Guess what? You could just sign up for the Patreon uh, to support me. Uh, you don't have to. But then maybe you can muster up the guts to to check it out. And I just want you to know, if you are scared... You know, I've had people on for the very first time. They just don't want to talk or put their camera on and they just want to listen. And so that is OK. You are welcome to do that. But uh, eventually, though, you're going to have to show your face. You can't be uh, the silent, invisible uh, lurker for, for months on end. But I will definitely give you some courtesy in the beginning. Um so yeah, next week, I think I'm going to do an episode on step four, probably a solo episode. Um, and that's about it. Uh, I, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adult child pod. Please hit me up. I love hearing from y'all and I will see you next week for an amazing fucking episode of adult child. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day. I promise. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.